and welcome to the inaugural episode of Beyond the Defense podcast. My name is Melissa Scott, and I'm joined with today with Dr. Heidi Fisher. So congratulations. We're going to have a slightly different episode today as our first one. So rather than bringing in an outside scholar to join us, we are going to talk about Dr. Fisher's recently defended dissertation. So thank you. Is it okay if I call you Heidi? Of course, Melissa. <laughs> so thank you, Heidi, for letting us have you as our guinea pig. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Why don't you start off by telling us the name of your study and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so my dissertation was titled A Narrative Inquiry of the Long-Term Impact of Community College Education Abroad. So a little bit about me. Uh, I am German uh, and not just because my family is stationed in Germany or my grandma's from there. No, I'm actually like proud holder of a German passport and came here a few decades ago to do a year on exchange to learn English. So I got on a plane for the first time, flew to rural North Carolina and began my journey of education in the United States. And after that year, I really felt like I had fallen in love with the country and the culture and the people. And my host mom invited me to begin my higher education at a community college. So that's in part why this study takes place at U.S. community colleges. I'm a proud graduate of Randolph Community College in North Carolina. That's really great because I think a lot of times, especially when we talk about higher education research, I think we think stereotypically of four-year institutions. So I just think it's really wonderful that we're starting off with a community college-based study. Yeah, absolutely. And so I certainly have um, through my time in the higher education system, both as a student, as a practitioner, kind of experienced the gamut of certainly public and private universities, but also community colleges. And I would say in, in the realm of international education, community colleges have come a long way in the, in the recent decade or so. We still see many more students studying abroad at four-year institutions, certainly about 350,000 or so uh, students studied abroad just in 2018-19, but about 8,000 of those were community college students. So there are those community college students that even though they're only at their institution for a couple of years, in many cases, um, they do want to have an international education experience during that time. Can you talk a little bit about the history of education abroad at community colleges? Like, where did it first start? How did it spread? I would say um, back in the years after the world, Second World War, um, there was a, a higher education commission um, I think it was Wilson was the president. Um, and so that you, you can correct me, Melissa, because I know you're the history buff in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, so there was a there was a higher education commission. And because of the repercussions of World War II uh, and in part World War One, uh, there was that sort of um, mandate given to higher education institutions to make available intercultural learning for its students to, certainly in terms of um, political science, foreign policy realm, but also a little bit of world peace mixed in. 
uh, and our cultural understanding to have not only those concepts in the classroom, but also to welcome international students on our campuses uh, and then to send students abroad in larger numbers than we had seen prior to the wars. Um, and community colleges were, were part of that, that commission, that call to internationalize the curriculum and to offer these international opportunities. And so right around the 1960s is when we first saw uh, freshmen and sophomores at community colleges study abroad. California community colleges have a consortium for just that purpose where they offer, one institution will plan the program. So it'll be the faculty member from that school leading the program. And then students from any of the community colleges in the consortium can join that trip. So really making it accessible to a variety of students from different campuses that may not have the infrastructure to support these programs, right? Like they may not have a study abroad advisor because the numbers are relatively small of the students that want to go. So California is kind of a, a shining beacon of what can be done in that realm. Um, although more recently, I think Maryland is, has a similar consortium for its students. So. Um, for its community college students. So there's, it's, it's definitely between 2017, 18, and then the year following, uh, we send 400 more community college students abroad. So not millions, but I, my study supports the idea that um, for those 400 more, it did make a difference. And we will get into the findings and the results of your study a little bit, but I, having attended your defense, some of the uh, results and findings that you had were just mind-blowing and really exciting as different avenues for further research. So it's, it's almost a shame because as we look at education abroad spreading in the community college population, we also have this intersection of like COVID-19, which shut down education abroad globally. So how do you, I know not connect it to your study, but how do you think these consortiums maybe even states that were looking to start them, how do you foresee them bouncing back? You know, it's interesting that you say it's not connected to this study, but it is actually um, something that I've been working on with Kimberly Cossey, um, who is in our program. We have, since the fall of 2020, researched virtual international education at community colleges in the United States. And what started out, it is so interesting with research, you know, you set out with these carefully written research questions. And then a year later, you, you realize, oh, this, this is this whole different thing um, that you didn't even anticipate. So Kimberly and I set out to look at virtual exchanges. We'd, we'd heard of this thing called COIL, which stands for Collaborative Online International Learning that the SUNY system um, started and, and sort of spread throughout the country. The opportunity that students in different classrooms in the United States and in other countries can come together in the virtual world and work on projects together embedded in the curriculum. And what we found through um, our mixed method study with community colleges this, this past fall was that not only were community colleges working towards expanding virtual exchanges, but they also had um, found other avenues to create this sort of portfolio of virtual international education, if you will, in which they offer now virtual study abroad. 
So they're not partnering these students necessarily with other international students in other countries, but they are offering virtual market tours, virtual museum visits at the Louvre. So um, it's a way to bring intercultural concepts into the classroom without leaving the campus or without leaving, I guess, our couch, right? Uh, in times of COVID. And I think that community colleges through this virtual international education have proven to be resilient. And I think many of them that we interviewed for this study, Kimberly and I interviewed for this study, uh, have have increased, uh, enhanced, leveraged their partnerships with institutions in other nations. And I think once the travel restrictions are li lifted, community colleges will just pick back up in a better place than where they were before the pandemic hit. I, I'm hopeful for the future of international education at community colleges. That's that's so good to hear because I think, you know, when we look at the perceived um, experiences that students have at a, to your, a community college versus a traditional four-year, you know, there are stereotypes that students have about what those experiences will be. And I think education abroad is a huge, a huge part of like when they go to, when they choose where they're going to college, they think, I want this experience. I want to study abroad. And they don't see that as an opportunity at a community college. Um, so I think the more that we can dispel that myth and provide the infrastructure to help support is really great. But I'm sorry, completely sidetracked us back to your dissertation. Uh -huh. Can you tell us how you settled on education abroad as a topic? Yeah, um, you know, I worked as a study abroad advisor and then later as a director of study abroad for about 12 and a half, 13 years. And so... I certainly, you know, having been an international student, had the experience of studying in another country um, and then sent, I would say, upwards of a thousand students abroad over my time as a study abroad advisor. And so a lot of those students I then tried to recruit to become peer mentors, so peer study abroad recruiters. And when we interviewed them for these positions, I would say, well, what did you get out of studying abroad, right? So that was one of the ways, like, how are you gonna, give me your elevator speech, dear student who just returned from Spain. What did you get out of it? Why should other students do it? And so I, I was always interested in that aspect of it, right? What do students learn when they study abroad? And then what happens after they graduate? Because much of the literature is, with students who just returned. So they, they're back, it's the semester after they returned or the assessment takes place while they're abroad, like write interviews before they fly home. Much of the literature is before students graduate. And so I was just curious, like what happens five years later? What do they remember? What impact has it had on their lives? That's really what drove this inquiry. And the community college aspect of it came in because when I started reading, study after study after study was with university students because there's just more of them. But that's not to say their stories and their voices are more significant than, than those of the uh, students at the community college or the technical college. So I was interested in, and, and this is why and you probably will ask me methodology questions a little bit later, but you know, I want to share stories of 
these students that have been left out of much of the conversation. Of course, there are uh, those articles and book chapters that that address these students, that, that include these students. Um, but I thought particularly research with community college alumni is very sparse. And that is sort of my grain of sand, if you will, that is in, in the on the big beach of higher education research, my grain of sand is community college alumni. Well, it's, it's a pretty big grain um, because you were able to identify a pretty substantial gap in our understanding of how students, the, the impact that study abroad has on our students. And I love that you chose not to look at the immediate aftermath, but down the road, how, what did students retain? How did this impact them? Because when we talk about learning, we talk about in many ways, sometimes we're planting a seed, but then we never really look long-term how that seed flourished and what kind of flower that grew into. Um, so I just, when I was reading your dissertation, I just, there were some things that resonated in the fact that you chose a population of individuals who had studied previously and we could see the more long-term effects that they had had. I just thought was really brilliant and really valuable. Outside of those factors, how do you see this research having an impact or what's it's important to the field of education abroad or higher education as a whole? I, I think um, there, there are a variety of ways. I think one that was surprising to me as a certainly cisgender, white, female, uh, yes, I'm an international student. And so in that sense, I'm, a, you know, I'm on a visa. So um, that makes me a minority of sorts, but I'm not a student of color or a person of color. So the idea that students of color have different experiences than the sort of majority population that studies abroad, which tends to be white females, was really surprising to me. And a lot of community college, I think community college population of students of color is higher than that of students at the university level. And in fact, community college study abroad programs lead the way in representation of, of diverse of students of diverse backgrounds. Um, so in that sense, you're going to get as a practitioner, as a study abroad advisor, so to say, or a faculty leader that leads these programs, you're going to interact with more students of color than you might at the university level. So what that means to me is, you know, one of the questions I asked in my interviews is, how were you able to leverage your experiences as a bicultural student? Some of my students were of um, Latin American descent. So how were you able to leverage your experiences as a Latinx student or uh, a Black student when you were in another country whose language you didn't speak and whose people you had never met? Uh, and the answers of those students were really enlightening to me in the sense, uh, for example, one quote that comes to mind is a student that was in Italy that said, oh, well, I had dealt with essentially systemic racism all through elementary school. I was ready to be looked at funny as being, I was ready to be the outsider in another country. I had that sort of resilience and strength and ability to persevere already from a very young age. And so studying abroad in terms of a challenge in, the, in that regard, in the sort of cultural adjustment regard, was just non-existent. And so the fact that we can turn that around and say, 
let's use an asset-based model of preparing these students to encounter these experiences abroad because they have these skills that we rarely talk about in the literature. I mean, I think there's more a movement towards that now, but um, I think that deserves to be underlined uh, and to say that, you know, we're gonna have, we want these non-traditional students to go abroad. Um, and so how are we gonna get them ready to go? And how are we gonna actually tell them you're gonna be successful when you go because you are uh, as of diverse ethnic background. And how can you leverage that asset to help them, like you had said, with like your peer mentors or mm -hmm. peer, how can you have them leverage that asset to help their peers prepare as well? Absolutely. It's, yeah. So what were some challenges that you found using narrative inquiry? Um, I will say, first of all, a challenge in qualitative research period, or let's just say a, a challenge in conducting research is that it takes forever. <laughs> um, I think I'm just naturally a very impatient person. And so when I came up with the idea of what I wanted to study, um, I was ready to send out emails to recruit participants. Um, but then you have to write a literature review and then you have to defend your proposal and then it has to go to IRB, right? So it just takes time. And, and uh, I wrote, I had previously reached out to a community college that I thought was going to be my study site. And uh, I, th I thought this is going to be great. I mean, they sent tons of students abroad. This is going to be a no brainer. Well, the study abroad coordinator there was more than willing to help me, but we only had two folks that signed up to participate and you can't really do a narrative inquiry with two participants. So uh, thankfully my committee member, uh, Dr. Rosalind Raby, one of my committee members is well connected in the community college world. She's published a ton for many, many years. Um, and so she suggested a few other colleges that were also prolific in sending students abroad that then worked out even better. Um, and so then I had uh, 27 participants in total. And part of my uh, goal with the study was to create a prolonged engagement with the participants. So that meant that I talked to them more than once. There certainly, I, I uh, intentionally created email conversation before prior to the first interview, you know, scheduling the appointment, did not use a self-booking system because I wanted that touch point with the participant um, so that they could start to get familiar with me. Um, and then, so 25 out of my 27 participants, I interviewed twice. The longest interview was probably about 90 minutes because we just got to talking. Uh, and then the shortest was probably about 30 um, and the challenge with that is it takes weeks to schedule these. I think I'd sort of envisioned in my naive mind that I would get data collection done within a month and it was more like three. Um, <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. It's just, that's something that I would think I'd be like, I'm going to get this done. Because, you know, how long does it take to interview 20 people, or, you know, or in my case, 27, but of course, Part of my methodology was to transcribe and analyze the transcript of the first round to then inform the interview protocol for the second round. It only makes sense, right? Like if you don't have a sense of what, what you're finding, what some of the themes are, what some of the interesting findings are, how can you drill down in, in the second round without having looked at that? So that prolonged things. And then, you know, 
folks got COVID. I mean, it, it just, you know, it's just interviewing in a pandemic in general. Um, that was challenging. And then I think if I'm honest, my, my participants were very diverse. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I journaled about that and I write about that in my reflexivity statement in, in the methodology chapter as to, you know, my positionality as a white female German Christian um, interacting with a, a black older man, an 80 year old woman, two folks who had previously been homeless or experienced housing insecurity, which I, that's not in my past. One person identified herself as LGBTQ. And again, like, so my positionality in regards to the, just the diverse patchwork quilt of participants that I had was something I, I constantly wrestled with, reevaluated, thought about, wrote about. Yeah. You said you thought about it. You wrote about it. What, what is that reflexivity process like for you? What are you writing about? What were some particular areas that you struggled to kind of wrap your mind around? I think from the get-go, I, I'll actually brag on, on one of my professors who you know, um, Dr. St. John, yeah. who teaches the helping skill class at in our program at Old Dominion. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, helping skills, surely that will come in handy in whatever position I have. Um, but that class really taught me interview skills and it was not designed to do that. But it just, you know, it teaches you how to listen, um, how to be patient when someone is thinking, how to skip a turn in an interview, um, to really let that other person speak. Um, and so in that sense, and, and Dr. St. John teaches about uh, unconditional positive regard. So the concept of Carl Jung, the psychologist that talks about, you know, in our interaction with those across from us, we're going to be open, we're going to be unconditionally positive and take in what that person is sharing with us. Um, and so I, in my reflection and my reflective writing, um, I encouraged myself to bring that concept to the forefront each time. Mm -hmm. But I also will say, admittedly, wrote about my fear of, how do I say this, of being not open enough, like, you know, my fear of what if I ask the wrong question? What if my tone is such that I put the interviewee on the defensive? Um, so those were all things that I sort of thought about that, you know, before each interview and then afterwards, sort of that sigh of relief of, oh, that seemed to go okay. Sure. You know, so that sort of not wanting to step on toes, but still wanting the answers, still wanting to really get a good glimpse into the experiences that these participants had. Yeah. And I always say that Dr. St. John is, if we boiled down the best of humanity and put that into one person, that is Dr. Dan St. John. I hope he's listening. <laughs> I, I don't. I I doubt that he will ever listen to this. But if he does, he will know the high regard we both have for him. So the flip side of that, what what were some areas of success? Like when you were working through this process that you're like, this is just really working really, really well. And I'm really happy that I chose narrative inquiry. Oh, gosh, um, my my favorite. And I, I wrote about this, too, in, in the reflexivity journal. 
you know, all these interviews were done over Zoom because a lot of my, all of my colleges were in different time zones than, than I am. So none of them were on the East Coast and all of them would have been a plane flight and a hotel and it was the pandemic. And so no one's traveling. Like all of these were obviously going to happen virtually or over Zoom. And Zoom gives you, as you well know, because you teach, <laughs> Zoom gives you the option to not turn on your camera. And so I did have a participant who on the first round interview left his camera off and he said, oh, can you hear me? And I said, I can't, but I can't see you. Oh, is that required? He asked. And of course you say, no, you do what you do, whatever makes you comfortable, right? Like at right. the end of the day, I want to have a conversation with you. I want to know about your story. Well, believe it or not, the second round, his camera was on. Oh, good. So I don't know if it was because, you know, he hadn't freshly showered and his hair wasn't what he wanted it to be, or that he felt like, which is what I like to believe, um, that he felt like I was pleasant enough, that he felt confident enough to turn his camera. Because, you know, he was, I don't know, 21, maybe. So I'm twice as old as, as he is. Um, so I think there's a sort of a power differential there sometimes with participants that, that you also have to negotiate. Um, so I, I wrote that down as a success. The other thing, and this speaks a little bit to my method, uh, is I was really um, adamant that I would do member checking with the participants. Okay. And, you know, we, we heard a lot about in our classes, oh, well, you know, you should have a second coder. If you're going to do a qualitative study, you should have a second coder. And in narrative inquiry, a second coder doesn't really make sense in my mind. Um, I'm sure that that's somewhere in the literature as a, as a best practice. But I think where I read, which is a lot of Clendenin, um, Jean Clendenin, she talks more about getting it right with your participants, right? Like it's not so much the idea that you get it right with a second coder, but that you tell the stories the way your participants would want them told. And so every single one of my 27 community college alumni got a draft of uh, chapter four, which is the findings chapter at ODU. And they're all by pseudonym. So I crafted a very nice email and your pseudonym is this. Let me know if you'd like to change it. Sure enough, I think three or four participants were like, what? That's the name you came up with? No, we're not using that, which is fine. I mean, you know, I'm only so creative. Uh, so then I would say a little over half had the opportunity to review. One person wrote back and said, I'm in tears at how accurately this represents me. One person who I felt like I sort of had a sort of head buddy kind of interview relationship, read the whole chapter and said, yeah, I really enjoyed those stories. You're a great writer. And like, oh, okay. Didn't see that coming from you. So yeah, like there was some corrections like, oh, well, that trip that you described was in Barcelona. So, the, you know, there were sort of minor things, but by and large, what they said to me was that I got it right. Mm -hmm. And that was really um, meaningful to me that they felt like the stories in chapter four represented the experiences that they had. That was really my goal. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we think about qualitative research, like that's the fear is that we take this interpretation of these stories and they're not the authentic 
experience or reality for our participants. Mm -hmm. And I, I do like that, that concept that it's like, you're not, you don't want to match a second coder. You want to match your participant and the story yeah. that they're telling. I, I always think about that. Like when you're choosing as someone who's going to be doing a qualitative dissertation as well, the most important thing that we can do is focus on the voice of our participants and making sure that that voice shines through. Yeah. Um, which is hard because the dissertation I'm sure is something so personal and to like take it out of the sense of you and I and make it about the other is something I just thought of and I don't know if that is poignant or not. So so you, you talked about chapter four, you talked about findings. Let's, was there anything unexpected that you found? I was not expecting two participants to share unprompted that they had experienced homelessness or or housing insecurity. There were also stories of loss. One of my participants' roommate um, in Spain tragically died uh, of a sort of unknown health condition, 20-year-old student. And so then everyone around her had to persist over the semester. And so I was that, you know, the sort of um, experience of tragedy unrelated to education abroad or community colleges it was just sort of the you know I am abroad and this just happened and so now how do you tease out the learning that takes place is it because of this loss is it because I'm a community college student who's studying abroad and I think at the end of the day I don't think it can be teased out I, so I had this sort of gamut of you know victims you pickpocketing victims you know um one of my participants shared that his son had recently overdosed. And so it was sort of the full humanity of experiences that I think these, these alumni just had an opportunity to share their life with another person that was willing to listen. And I think there are more stories to be told beyond study abroad. I mean, just sort of the humanity of community college students in general, like these are real people. And when we talk about, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but when we talk about guided pathways, mm. right, you familiar with that concept, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, let's graduate these students in the most efficient way possible. And I'm thinking my experience with 27 of them was that they're all quite different. And um, and diverse and beautiful. And so if we're trying to now streamline them into these artificially created sequences, um, when what they, what some of them may need is in fact exploration mm -hmm. across disciplines and perhaps not to transfer after a year and a half on the transfer track, right? So yeah, I just, that's sort of the, the beauty of the study of, of a study like this is that you can really see the, the, the beauty, beautiful diverseness of all the, the humanity at the community college. Um, and then secondly, some of the impact that studying abroad had on some of these students was quite unexpected. So for example, two of them were currently in graduate school in Germany so that not only did they move on to graduate school, but they moved abroad. And I just sort of wasn't anticipating that, um, particularly because both students were, uh, when they studied abroad the first time, were on a summer program. You know, think of like, okay, you've lived abroad for a year and you were enrolled at a university. Sure, that probably had a big impact on you. But in the case of these two students, they were abroad for five weeks. 
with other students from their college and to faculty members. Um, and then a third student that I interviewed is probably currently in Seoul, Korea, teaching English. Um, she had just gotten accepted in our second interview. So uh, again, like unexpected repercussions of, of tipping that toe in the water internationally. And did you find when you were speaking to these students, were there any experiences learning that they brought with them as they continued in their college experience to their four year? Did it impact their choice of where they went? Yeah, there were actually, there was, there was one that didn't occur to me until the defense and, and, a, and one of my committee members asked me specifically, oh, do you think this is why she chose this, this school? And it hadn't occurred to me. Um, but yes, there was one of my students um, that studied abroad in Belize and in Ghana, later transferred to an HBCU, and she is an African-American student. And I think that her experience, um, you may remember from you know, her story in chapter four, she talks about, oh, well, when I was in Ghana, I could wear my hair naturally, and no one looked at me funny. And I think that there's a possibility, and I did not, I failed to draw this out in the interviews, but there's a possibility that she felt like, you know, if I go to an HBCU, I'm going to get to experience more of that, mm-hmm. more of that freedom to be who I really am. Um, so I think that's a potential area for future research, for sure. Um, and I think the other thing, the other student that was very obvious to me was a student of Mexican descent. I think she was third or fourth generation Mexican-American and she studied abroad in Mexico. And so she sort of speaks Spanish, but not, she's not native. And she later transferred to a university and studied Latinx and she connects studies and Mexican foreign policy. And so it was just very obvious, like, okay, this is my heritage and now I've experienced it. And now I want to know it all. I want to know everything there is to know about my family and my history. And she reported, and it was great on because of Zoom, I could be in her house. And so she shared family photos of her great-grandparents and um, some of that, that history. But she's turned into the family historian. And to honor her grandmother will also, her, her grandmother and her study abroad experience in Mexico will be immortalized in a permanent tattoo uh, somewhere um. on her body. I hope she sends you a photo of that because that <laughs> I would love to see that. that you're really right. Yeah, you're right. And, and what a wonderful way to integrate an experience with your family and identity and build upon that. And really, you know, that's these these stories are showing how these experiences short comparatively to someone's life right. really kind of set us set, can set them on like a specific path that they may not have anticipated. So tell me a little bit about your theoretical framework and how you applied that as you were going through all of your data, parse out and make those findings. Yeah, I think that um, I use for the majority of the study, I used a conceptual framework um, and that is Krager et al's three dimensions of learning. It's from 1993. I mean, it's been expanded, but the original framework is that there's three dimensions of learning and I call them the ABCs of learning. So you've got your effective, that's your A. um, So that's your attitudinal learning. Behavioral, that's your B. So that's your skill-based learning. 
Um, and then cognitive, that's your say, that's your knowledge, right? So that's your, your, your memories and your, your sort of um, facts that you pick up. And so I, my literature review, my entire chapter two, my literature review is the studies are sorted into those three dimensions. And some of them sort of didn't really fit and I didn't think much of it. I just put them where they fit the best in, in, my, in my mind. And then when I tried to sort the findings of my own study into that framework, I felt like much of my findings were at the intersection of some of these dimensions. So that, okay, sure. Like, so for example, language learning is a, is a cognitive skill, right? That's a knowledge. You learn a language. Well, many of my participants didn't actually learn a language. So I didn't have an easy one to say, oh, here's language learning and it's cognitive. But uh, so for example, the students that moved abroad, well, where do you categorize that, right? Like, and so I think in, in that sense, moving abroad is both the ability to do so and then choosing to do it. Um, so it's sort of the intersection of behavioral and effective, like that you're making that choice, that desire, um, that attitude towards moving to another location. And so, and then identity was another that I felt like, okay, where do you, we're observing a shift in these students' identities, uh, whether they became more independent or they sort of embraced their um, Latinx heritage or whatever, like their identities are reaffirmed. And that's certainly a learning because you're learning about yourself, but does it fit neatly into one of these three dimensions? And I would say in a lot of cases, it really didn't. That's interesting. So would you advocate doing more study on this and maybe coming up with the Fisher? Well, you know, I have a very nice Venn diagram in chapter five um, that I agonized over for many hours that I think is sort of the first stab at a potential way to, to sort out, not that they need to be sorted out, but if you want to use a framework and a lot of journal articles, certainly a lot of research is framed by either conceptual or theoretical underpinnings, then I would say that I call it the revised framework for lack of a better title um, is sort of a start, right? Because I have it such that the dimensions overlap Venn diagram, right? So the circles overlap and the circles can be bigger depending on how many outcomes or how many students fit into that category or, or that overlapping region. Um, so yeah, I would, I, it would be great if, if other graduate students or other scholars could, could have a look at that and maybe confirm those findings. So what does this all mean? How do you foresee this dissertation, the research that you did in it, how do you see that moving our, the scholarly conversations forward? That's a really good question. Uh, and it's one that, <laughs> fair warning, when you get to this stage of your dissertation, that's one of the hardest things. The discussion has always been the hardest thing for me. Like, oh, what are the implications? So I struggled with that. I struggled with making it make sense. Um, it, it wasn't my favorite section to write. I need, I, there was the most revisions out of anyone in the, you know, in terms of the committee wanted a lot of revisions in that area. So I think what it means um, sort of in a broad sense is yes, study abroad has value. Yes, community college students benefit from it, particularly, and Dr. Raby has been writing about this for many years. Uh, we think of community colleges, we often think of workforce development. Mm -hmm. 
And today's workforce is global. Today's workforce is diverse. And so if community college's mission is to develop today's workforce, guess what? They're gonna have to work with diverse others. They're going to have to have some sense of intercultural fluency. Employers are asking for it. So the meaning of it is, I guess that yes, like community college students who study abroad do make these, these gains. Um, they do achieve these outcomes that can be beneficial to them in the work world. And so community colleges that have strong study abroad programs or education abroad programs should continue, especially after the pandemic. Um, there, there is evidence that some community colleges have lost positions in their education abroad realm because why would you fund someone for a year that's not able to send students abroad when you're already struggling with state appropriations declining, enrollment declining, right? So it's easy to cut in areas where there appears to be no activity. And so my argument would be beef it back up. Once we can send students abroad again, um, there needs to be financial underpinning from those colleges that had these programs to revitalize them because they are valuable. And our students are telling us that they're valuable and that they're learning from them, from these experiences and that they're applying those skills in the work world. I think you had touched on earlier the, you know, questioning and seeing potential. Is there an opportunity to look at, you know, with these underrepresented populations going abroad and the experiences there, how does that, how does that process, you know, impact whether it's consciously or subconsciously choices of where they go to school and then potential like areas of study, jobs as they move forward. I think there's a huge, my two cents, there's a huge opportunity there that I would I look forward to you studying and reading as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of community colleges, you know, want to create programs that they think will make. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no sense in planning programs to locations that are going to be price prohibitive or the students are just not interested. But I think that uh, my study abroad locations in the dissertation were as diverse as the students. I had a program in China. I had several in in continent of Africa, several in sort of Latin, Middle, Central America. Uh, And then, but of course, the majority were in Western Europe. I mean, that is what sort of everybody thinks of that picture on top of the Eiffel Tower or at the Trevi Fountain. Sure. Um, But I think that participants in my study also demonstrate that that community college students are interested in just about any location um, that will have academic and personal value for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that the implications of this study include, as you said, that, you know, community colleges that don't already have diverse locations on offer could work towards that because we know from this study that it implicates or it has implications for these students beyond graduation, like that student that transferred to university and then studied more Mexican uh, related topics and her, pursued her degree in that area. And that student that transferred to an HBCU, perhaps in part of her experience on the African continent. Um, so yeah, we can't, we can't preclude that. Mm-hmm. So what is next for Dr. Fisher? What research do you have going on now? Where are you are you presenting? I think now there's all the rage with virtual conferences. What's the future like for you? 
Well, um, currently I'm in the middle of a study with Kimberly Cossey on virtual international education at community colleges that has had very exciting possibilities present itself. So uh, she and I are presenting at the Council for the Study of Community Colleges, another academic conference on that topic. And we have a, a few manuscripts in, in the works on that that really um, tell the story that community colleges can be resilient and forward thinking and creative. And that's the story that we want to tell. I'm finishing up a study about international students at the community college at the onset of the COVID pandemic. And so what was community college's response to the pandemic in light of having international students on campus? And that's been really interesting. So yeah, a few a few irons in the fire. Um, I also, um, apparently this is what you do after you defend. Um, you reach out to folks on your committee to see if they're interested in publishing bits and pieces. I did not know this. They did not teach us this in class. So um, I wrote to my chair sort of naively and said, um, Dr. Williams, uh, what, how does this process work? Um, and so he was kind enough to meet with me and, and walk me through it. But apparently you just pick a few themes that you want to highlight and break out in the journal articles and then ask folk individually if they'd like to sign on. And then they do. And apparently now uh, this was so interesting. I got an email from my methodologist today saying, well, I don't want to just add my name to this um, without doing any work. So how can I be helpful? And I thought, oh, I'm the scholar now. I get to delegate the work. <laughs> oh. That was really unexpected. Well, so I encourage everyone to finish your dissertation because it's a whole lot of fun after it's done. I was going to say, she's my chair, so please don't delegate her a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> yeah, she's Noted, got a project Melissa. with me. She's got a project with me. Um, yes, she does. <laughs> um. Well, you know, any, I, I was going to ask about if you were going to take the dissertation and publish it, um, but you kind of talked on that. So any final thoughts to wrap up this discussion about this wonderful product that you have provided the world? I will say one thing that was unexpected um, is, you know, I shared two, two things, actually, that just earlier this week, I said, when my dissertation was approved by the graduate school, I sent a final version to my four community colleges, letting them, you know, I'd highlighted in green who their students were so they could easily see the stories that were theirs. And one of them wrote back and said, I'd like to have you on a call with some stakeholders to really talk about the importance of these programs. Um, and the value of education abroad for community college students. So I thought, wow, like another great way to kind of spread the word to those on campus who either lead these programs, fund these programs, you know, whatever. So that's a great opportunity that I'm, I'm looking forward to that coming up. Um, and I also send a final version to my participants. Mm -hmm. Just said, I'm writing to you today as Dr. Heidi Fisher and thank you for your part in getting us to this point. And so far, three have written back. It's a long document. I don't really expect anyone to read the full thing. And they have all read excerpts of chapter four. 
But my octogenarian that that studied abroad in Oxford wrote back and said, you know, I really did mean it when I said, come look me up if you're ever in my state. I'd love to meet you and, and learn more about what you do. And that may just be her, or it may be the, the relationship we built as the researcher and the participant. Um, and I thought that was just so wonderful. Again, the humanity of, you know, um, you're not a subject. Mm-hmm. You're a voice that I'm hoping to share as a as a as a patch in in the quilt of what makes up community college education abroad. Um, so that was just a wonderful, beautiful response from her. Oh, wonderful. Any last advice you would have for students who are currently on this doctoral dissertation journey? It could be classwork. It could be writing the dissertation to get through it and become doctor like you. That's a tough one. No, no pressure or anything. Um, here's, you know, the million dollar advice from Heidi. Um, I mean, Dr. Heidi, I, I would say, you know, I, I will share what's at the end of my acknowledgements and perhaps that will help someone. Um, my last sentence in my acknowledgments is that I had heard that the doctoral journey, dissertation journey was often lonesome um, or a lonely endeavor because you really are that one and only person that writes this dang thing. And I found that because of all the people I think in my acknowledgments, it wasn't as lonely as I had feared. I did not feel most of the time that it was a lonely endeavor. Um, and I think the majority of the, or the biggest reason for that is that I surrounded myself with folks who would let me text them at all hours of the day, yourself included, that I always felt like if I had something I wanted to run by someone, there was someone who would respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's your chair or your committee, the folks you live with, your friends, folks in the cohort, ahead of you or behind you, um, other faculty members, you know, and in my case, I did send an email to a former choir director uh, at at a church in Greensboro, North Carolina, High Christ Church folk, uh, and I said, I need some prayer, because, you know, you might as well, (laughs) Um, and I got several emails from folks who still remembered me from being in that choir years ago and and sent well wishes and, and positive thoughts and um, perhaps some prayers. And I thought all, all that together, all those people put together, uh, it takes a village, right? So seek out your village. That would be my advice. And was, was it your dissertation seminar instructor who told you to create a cheer team? That's right. A dissertation support committee. Yes, Dr. Uh, Kim Bullington suggested a dissertation support committee. So I did have a committee of four and um, they all got pom-poms in the mail. Um, You know, why not? And some of them had their pom-poms at the ready at any given moment. (laughs) Happily, happily. I thought that was very helpful. I mean, there were months that I didn't write to them with any updates because I communicated with them in other ways as well. But it was nice to know, well, here's this cohort of people that have agreed to cheer me on. And so why wouldn't, why wouldn't I 
um, reach out to them with happy news or delays or, you know, whatever. So. And when you had told me about that, I thought that was so smart because, and I know Dr. Williams had said this, but I've heard it from multiple people, both from within our institution and outside of our institution, where when you're in a cohort experience, you get to dissertation and there is an element of falling off the cliff because you suddenly break out. And so to create a reinforced cohort of people who are going to support you through that, I think that is really great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your dissertation research with us and some of your other research, which was equally interesting. On a personal note, it brings a great sense of joy to call you Dr. Heidi Fisher, having been there for this journey with you. And Heidi is going to be, we are going to co-host this podcast together in the future. Woo! So um, you will, this is not the last that you will hear from her. Um, our next guest will have the joy of having both of us ask them questions. So thank you to Heidi, as well as our listeners out there. Um, again, this is Beyond the Defense podcast. Our goal is to provide a platform for higher education researchers to share their research and break the bonds of the paid journal networks. <laughs> Please follow us on our social media channels, Facebook at Beyond the Defense, and Twitter is at Beyond underscore underscore defense. Both of those you can link to our website if you're interested in participating and being a guest on the podcast. We just ask that you have a higher ed adjacent topic and come on and join us for a conversation. But thank you so much um, and we hope you return for our next guest. We will be publishing weekly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>